<laughs> Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. I forget how it goes after that. I'm your host, <laughs> Alexander Youngre, with my lovely co-host, Sunshine Yvette Ballon. <laughs> Nailed it! Thank you. Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. This is a true crime and horror podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm your host, Alexandria Young-Ray, with my lovely co-host, Sunshine Bellon. Hey guys, good to be back! Ta-da! Woo! I remembered the intro, I good think. Good job! <laughs> yeah, it's been since February. That's way too long. I, f- I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's way too long. Fuck. Like, part of me feels like a massive asshole, and then part of me is just like, that feels like two weeks ago. So. Oh, yeah. No, I've existed in a time bubble. Though, like, I feel like I've been in, like, a sensory deprivation chamber of my house while the right. world moves around me. Yeah, definitely <laughs> the, like, whole Rona thing. Like, it's, it's just a weird thing to time, because I think, you know... There were a lot of reasons why I was just like legitimately way too swamped to handle recording. And then, and then, mm-hmm. and that, and I think all of those busy factors, you know, made everything kind of fast forward, right? Which is why it doesn't seem like it's been that long since February. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, hard stop in March. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the world caught on fire right as we were in the middle of doing um, a really big, heavy topic. And so we were like, oh, I can't do it this week or can't. ever again. Or ever. Just <laughs> nothing. Well, and I don't even remember what specifically was. I know. I think uh, my company was transitioning. And then, yeah, and then my boyfriend moving in so we could, like, quarantine together. <laughs> and, like, yeah. the uncertainty I felt about that. Like, oh, are you staying afterward? He would still be here even if he didn't want to be, I think. But <laughs> as far as quarantining is concerned, he's fucked. But... <laughs> <laughs> true yeah 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 but honestly i think that i think that our listeners have been really understanding you know everybody's Thanks, been handling yeah thank you thank you thank you like legitimately actually thank you so much i was looking at our patreon recently nobody's unsubscribed oh my god we have we have been not producing content for eight months i'm still <laughs> getting still patreon contributions oh like like, oh. actually, thank you so much. So that's actually, so that's one of the updates. Um, but yeah, so so we stopped in the middle of the prison industrial complex. Which is so awful and terrible. Well, actually, at the very beginning of the prison industrial complex. But after one very hard episode. After one very hard episode. Uh, right before some very hard episodes. And honestly, like, you know, with the world being on fire and then stuff just getting crazy in our own personal lives, uh, I didn't have the emotional energy to do the research and recording for those episodes. And we will come back to them. Absolutely. We will, we will, we will do the prison industrial complex. We will get those episodes done someday, particularly with the BLM music movement right now. It feels simultaneously topical but tacky to continue right now like um kind of like getting listens because it's so topical like almost mm-hmm. like profiting off of what's going on 
Yeah, it's like, look, we are, yeah. we, we, we pride ourselves in being anti-racist. <laughs> that is, that is an important thing for this podcast. Yeah, for sure. But you're right. I don't want to get listens just because, you know, I don't, but I don't yeah. think we're the, we're the, you know, I think you do an amazing job, but we're not necessarily the primary source to help people better understand race relations and all the terrible things that are going on right now. And that have been going on, right? Like you, yeah. you do an amazing job, but still, um, you know, we're, we're a true crime and horror podcast. So, uh, I agree. We don't really need to be getting listens, um, from people who are seeking to have a better understanding of, you know, what's going on for the life in mm-hmm. the lives of like black Americans. Like that's not really yeah. something we can speak to. And that's probably the listens we would be getting, right. Is people who yeah. are like, Oh, the prison industrial complex is super bad for black people. Let me learn more about it. And it's like, well, yeah. we, and, like, we that try, was but <laughs> we were going to talk about. Absolutely. That was, a, I mean, literally the next episode. That's kind of a cornerstone, right? Was actually a slavery episode. Which right. Like 13th so Amendment to leading research. to the PSE. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We we're going to talk about slavery in America. And then we we're going to talk about how slavery in America never actually ended. But yeah, we're just two white girls. And right now with the BLM mu- movement, if you want to learn more about the lives of black Americans, listen to black Americans. Yeah, go figure, right? You know? Like, <laughs> Talk to like, people who actually like experience it, we, not people who research it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, do your own research and, and find, um, you know, people of color who are speaking their own truth and, and, and give them, you know, your ears because they are impressive and wonderful creators that deserve your attention. Well, it's their moment, you know, it's, it's their moment. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. that's where your attention should be directed for sure. And I think that like, yeah. I don't know, I guess it's kind of always the case, but it feels more, more important now. Yeah. Like yeah. on top of everything, yeah. we don't need to go telling their story. Like, I think yeah. that there's definitely so. a perspective, a valid perspective that you and I can bring to the situation, right? As people who are not people of color, right? As like 20 something mm-hmm. year old white, white chicks. Um, I think that. We do still have a valid perspective on that just because, you know, we're like caring human beings who think this shit is awful. Uh, but yeah, as, yeah <laughs> there are I still, don't, I don't for, think that we as far are, as timeliness you know, goes, there are still better uh, options. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think that we are unqualified to talk about the prison industrial complex. Like, I am a lawyer. I right. did get a criminology <laughs> certificate when I was in undergrad. Like, I'm not, I'm not like talking out of my ass when i talk about the prison industrial complex right you're not some becky (laughs) i'm not some becky but yeah no particularly right now when we're dealing with like police brutality against people of color i just feel like it's inappropriate for us to carry on our prison industrial complex series um we'll come back to it at some point I believe that we decided that all of the patreon money that we made while we were inactive will be donated to the naacp yes most definitely. So that, you know, legal funds for people of color will be getting some benefit from us disappearing off the face of the earth for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that. That's the uh, prison industrial complex update. We've got some other stuff in the pipeline that I am so fucking stoked to be working on. Oh, Alex has been nerding out so hard. Oh my god, I've been working so goddamn... Like, months. Months I have been working on this. Literal months. I am so, so excited to bring some of the stuff that I have been working on researching for that is not quite as heavy. 
still always heavy. Everything's a little heavy. I mean, it's true crime and horror. We deal with like murderers and spooks and yeah, true yeah. crime and horror. We're gonna it's gonna be heavy. That's yeah. how we do. Yeah, but um. <laughs> I didn't mean to get political this episode. I mean, I'm always a little political. Horror is inherently political. We'll get it on a t-shirt someday, I promise. (laughs) Caroline gave me 19 crimes wine for my birthday. I turned 30, by the way. Oh, yeah. I shouldn't have said. I know. I shouldn't have said that. We were 20-something. I'm an old old lady. I turned 30 in the quarantine. I almost almost cried about it. I I actually probably did cry about it. I feel like that's fair. (laughs) Um, <laughs> I just wanted a cooler 30th birthday. <laughs> it's okay. It was fine. It was fine. It was fine. But I specifically saved the 19 crimes for the next time me and Sunshine would record together. So. Ta-da! Cheers. Oh, oh yeah. So I was like, I was like, oh yeah, we're going to do a fun episode. And then while I was doing the research, I was like, <laughs> I keep bringing politics into this. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay. It'll still be fun. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun, but it's political. Everything's political. Well, existence is inherently political at this point, so <laughs> shit, man. Every every day you're alive is an act of revolution, so, like, get fucked. <laughs> now, who are you telling to get fucked, precisely? I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I have a lot of pent-up sure. aggression. It just I have a lot of pent-up aggression. I've been inside for seven months. Don't be mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. Um, so yeah, is that our, is that our life update? I think that's our life update. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we're going to try really hard to get back on something of a schedule. We're not going to be doing weekly again. Not yet, but we might, we might try for every other week. Yeah. No, I think that's what we're going for. Sunshine's currently working on like multiple sort of, well, I guess I just finished one, but more certifications (laughs) for work and promotions and things like that. Trying to be a big girl. So tightens up my schedule a little bit but i think we can at least do bi-weekly like my paycheck (laughs) so yeah we're back bitches so yeah let's get into it yeah let's get into it yeah yeah all right i'm so fucking excited about this topic this was so much fun to research so we're gonna be doing the history of slasher films yeah is like the the skeletal outline of this topic lives rent free in my brain so (laughs) at all times yeah no making the outline i was able to just bust like half of the outline out just before i even started research right i think it's important that our listeners know i think i mean i'm sure this has come up lots but you never know maybe it'll be someone new or someone who hasn't listened in a while but definitely it was a super formative part of my like teenagehood to um watch various horror movies with Alex and I always think of her as like the source for you know what I want to watch a horror movie that'll creep me out but not make me feel too scared or not put in the existential dread like the person I could definitely go to for like uh very specific horror enjoyment advice and so this is very I think this is going to be another one of those deeply nostalgic episodes even though you know uh I think the last slasher film I actually well besides like Cabin in the Woods which is kind of like, you know, that fun, uh, I'm going to reference all the other horror movies, movies mm-hmm. um, which I think might kind of qualify as a slasher, maybe not. We'll talk about it. We'll talk the, about it. The last slasher film I think I actually really watched was you and a uh, dreaded ex watching Jason oh. in Space. I love Jason X! <laughs> Was that, oh God, Jason that X? Is that, is that the Jason trashy, in Space one? I love it. Yeah, it was pretty. Yeah. It was pretty good. Bad, <laughs> bad oh good. I don't God, know. 
I mean, honestly, if you are watching Friday the 13th after, like, the third or fourth movie, you are 100% watching for the camp. Yeah, that's true. Period. End of story. But I, <laughs> that is my favorite slasher franchise, almost certainly because of nostalgia, but <laughs> Jason X, Mwah. chef's kiss. <laughs> so yeah, no, we're doing, we're doing history of slashers. Um, we'll start with, like, first horror films ever, like a, like a very base history of horror films. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get into history of slashers and it's going to be just like a lot of fun. And someday when I'm a big fucking nerd, big kid, and I write like a history of horror textbook, this is going to be a chapter in that textbook. Oh, please do that. I really hope that's a legitimate life goal of yours. I think that would be perfect. It actually is. I would love to write like a horror textbook. Specifically pertaining to horror films or just... I mean, everything, all the things we talk about, the poli- the political nature of horror, how it develops, like, oh, sociologically. I can't talk about, about horror without talking about the political nature of horror. <laughs> yeah. I guess I was more wondering if uh, the, the sociology of horror, you know, is something that kind of comes up. Oh, I feel yeah, like that's no, a this, common thread, like, right? The sociology if we're not, is definitely If we're not talking about it. a true crime issue and the political nature of fear, right, we're talking mm-hmm. about uh, horror and how often, you know, even the even the fictional horror stories that come up in a certain time or a certain place are, like, indicative of what's going on, like, sociologically for people. Yeah. Well, and that's something that I kind of brought up in this, like, outline is, like, horror is inherently political. Like, it is meant to be subversive. And even if, like, even if the creator didn't mean it to be subversive... It's political because what we're afraid of is political. Right. What we're afraid of is reflective of like where we are as a society mm-hmm. and what our fears are yeah, collectively. It, for it, sure. It is a hundred percent a reflection of our culture. You know, who who is who is the other is inherently political. Sometimes I think that people get very, and, I, and I've been in this camp, right? Like I definitely, I still kind of am a little like weird and judgy when it comes to people who really like things like um, Saw Gordon. and... Uh, <laughs> Oh, what was the one where people went to, like, hostile. hostile? Yep. And things like that, like gore porn. I think I'm still pretty judgy of gore porn, and I don't know if that's ever going to change. But um, I think that the... We talk about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the uh, political nature, or at least the sociologically kind of, like, revealing nature of horror is something that more people should kind of keep in mind if they're going to be, like, super judgmental of, like, you know, Halloween flicks and things like that that people like to watch. Because I, I think that that um, can kind of lend a fresh perspective to... You know, I don't know, just to, to watch them with a kind of different uh, view could be really beneficial mm-hmm. for people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm like, oh, man, as as soon as I started, ta- like, researching, like, media rhetoric mm-hmm. in relation to, like, sociological and political implications, mm-hmm. like, I couldn't turn it off. Yeah. So there's no way I can watch a horror movie without being like, okay, but, like, what does this mean, like, societally? You know, and one, <laughs> one element that I'd like to actually bring up that I do think is kind of valid uh, that, that um, was brought up to me by, um, actually, our clinical director, uh, so our head, kind of very educated head therapist, right? Mm-hmm. And he talked about how, especially for teenagers, he was speaking in terms of teenage boys, that um, and but he said for for girls as well, just like as people develop, that on a neurological level, the kind of stimulus and response to horror is is almost inexorably linked to uh, sexual arousal and attraction. And <laughs> so it's 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 interesting because you see people who get on like the very kind of like oh, save the children, don't let them watch this kind of thing, like 
you know, uh, if there's any sexual sexualization component to the horror, that it's going to turn men into rapists and this, that, and the other. And, you know, just on and on the problems that people uh, claim can come from people watching mm-hmm. horror movies. Uh, but I thought that was interesting because, you know, he's a person that I feel isn't kind of like um, an irrational, you know, protect the children, make everything clean, you know, that kind of thing by any means at all. But he's very mm-hmm. against uh, our students watching any kind of uh, horror films uh, hmm. uh, from a therapeutic, since they are there for therapy and they are there for emotional behavior oh, problems. okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's okay. this. And I, and I, I was think, like, man, I watched a lot of horror films. Well, up. and I, I don't think it's inherently always uh, bad, but I think it's just good to sort of be aware of. And I believe him that it's true because that's his area of expertise. Just this, this, the uh, excitement and the nervousness and the, you know, tension and all of those things that you kind of feel when viewing a, a horror film. Those are the same kind of sensations and they are on a neurological level, very, very linked to the same kind of things you feel when you're excited sexually. Um, which I just think is fun information to have as far as, you know, sometimes we discuss like, oh my God, why do people like this? You know, because I, I find myself, even though, you know, even though I myself enjoy it, sometimes I find myself going like, oh my God, this is fucked up. Like, I'm literally listening to stories about, you know, other members of my species being hacked to bits and, and, and you know, whatever stored in a trash can or this, that and the other, you know. And so just the acknowledgement that like, maybe on some sort of neurological level, there's a link between that and uh, a kind of excitement that we're very, very driven to pursue, I think is interesting. Right. Well, yeah, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. That a thing. Uh, we ready? We, we ready? We ready? It? Let's get into it. Let's go. For, I got the outline pulled up on my phone. Pomegranates and pitchforks. Palm pitch pod. Mm-hmm. Palm pitch pod. All right. So yeah, let's get into. We're gonna we're gonna start with like a history, like a really basic history of horror film industry. The very, very first horror films. Quick, when was the first horror film ever made? Oh, that is a difficult, dis- like, that. I cannot actually answer that because there's a lot. Uh, was the question more nuanced than I realized? Yes. Okay. Yes. Fair. There Fair. are, like, three different first horror film ever made. Okay. Okay. Sorry. So, I didn't mean to derail things. <laughs> no, no. It's, 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 you know, it's topical. So we're going to have a few first horror films ever made. The first horror film ever made, arguably... The Execution of Mary Stewart, 19, or 1895. It is an Edison Studios film. Uh-huh. So Thomas Edison's production company. Wow, okay. It is an 18-second film depicting the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. Oh, great. It is the first film to use trained actors, and it is the first film to use special effects. What was the special effect? Was it blood? Blood from no, the guillotine? No, there was no blood. Oh. Uh, it was specifically the stop motion effect of pausing, like not rolling the camera mm-hmm. for a second so that they could make it look like the head had been chopped off. Oh, perfect. That's lovely. Yeah. It's an 18 second film. <laughs> that's, you know, considering it was Thomas Edison's production company, that's pretty great. Yeah. The first horror film ever made. Also, arguably... Uh, French stuff. Le Manoir du Diable. House of the Devil. Okay. Also 1895. It is a three-minute film. Ooh. Ooh. Look out, Edison. Yeah. By uh, Georges Méliès. Méliès, okay. 
So George Melies is actually uh, like the father of special effects. Oh, cool. He's pretty neat. So he um, he was the creator of special effects. He was the first dude to really like fuck with special effects with with films. And that makes sense because he started his career as a stage magician. I like that. So he was using like weird, neat tricks on stage that he then right. brought. That makes to... perfect sense. That like sleight yeah. of hand. I mean, that's pretty much what I think special effects are. Is right? It's like look over here. Wait, boom. Yeah, and so uh, I think the most famous of his films is uh, Trip to the Moon, which was the first science fiction. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. And one. it's and it's the everybody knows the image of like the guy the moon face with the like yeah, yeah, yeah. rocket sticking rocket out of the eye in his face. yeah that's george melies okay perfect yeah so in the house of the devil he used his talent for special effects to tell the story of this devil that torments some sol- soldiers with magic and so like there's a spooky bat and then he uses the stop motion effect to be like and now it's a devil ah! and there was like a lot of stop motion effects um, a lot of like smoke and now a thing's here. Yeah. Smoke, now a thing's gone. You know, very, very stage magician. I love it. Um, so that is also the first horror film ever. <laughs> okay, third first horror film ever. So then there's also, there's a lot of early short films in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. A lot of literature adaptations. Right, that makes sense. So in 1905, we've got Esmeralda, which is the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. Um, that one's kind of neat because it's directed by Alice Guy Blash uh, and this dude, Victorine Hippolyte Yassé. I don't know. I don't know him. But anyway, Alice Guy Blash, we might actually talk about at some point because she is boss she's so cool she was like a really really like um integral to early films early horror Mm -hmm. she um she was the person who created like coloring films oh literally using like fucking watercolors on each goddamn frame actually like oh my god (laughs) Uh, and so she actually did some really cool stuff. Maybe we'll do like a like a short episode on her someday because she's really fucking cool. Gotta gotta love you know women in horror. Yeah, for maybe, sure. Maybe we'll do a short on her during Women in Horror Month. Right, that's a good idea. Yeah, um, but she's fantastic. So uh, you know, 1905 is Esmeralda. Uh, 1908, uh, Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. 1910, Frankenstein. The thing is, all of these movies are considered part of the lost films. Okay. Lost um, films meaning, know. were they actually lost or? Yeah. So, so a lot of early films um, died in a fire. <laughs> like, died very literally. Wasn't film, like, super flammable back in the day? Like, film rolls? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, like, we didn't have any kind of, like, internet copies. Right, there's no backups. And, and so, and so, like, films, like, if you had a five-minute-long film, that was a thousand feet of film. It wasn't cheap. <laughs> it was hard to copy. So you had one copy of a film. If that shit got ruined for some reason, which um, I believe there was a, there actually was, like, a big fire that killed a lot of early films. 
Um, but also, you know, films just getting lost through Whatever. natural stuff happening, yeah. causing films to get lost. Like, basically, early films disappeared into obscurity a lot of times. So, hmm. the neat thing about uh, the 1910 Frankenstein is it almost uh, was a lost film. And uh, so so this was also produced by Edison Studios, uh, 16 minutes long. Ooh. That's impressive. Super long. Uh, <laughs> and um, it was a commercial failure. Nobody liked it. Nobody liked it. And... It almost it almost disappeared into obscurity, especially was considered a lost film. If it weren't for this film collector, I think his name is Alois Detlef. Alois. A-L-O-I-S. Yeah, sure. Alois. Um, for French, I'm and sure it could be right. And he purchased the film in, 19, in the early 1950s, only to much later discover what it actually was. Oh, really? He didn't know... Mm-hmm. Huh, he didn't okay. know because he was just like a film collector. He just sort of was, was like, "I'll buy this one and this one and this one." He I'll was go. like, "Oh shit, this is one of the lost films." Because you know they didn't have internet in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. You couldn't just like Google what is this weird film? <laughs> yeah, right. And so that's he. He made a bunch of copies of it, but he mm-hmm. was like weirdly like, "No, this is mine." And so he put a watermark on the film. Really? So Even though he wasn't involved see... in, like, a production at all, it was just, like, a, I bought this, it's mine now. Yeah, well, watermark. and, like, it's it's a 1910 film. It is currently, and has for a, for a while, I don't think when he first discovered that it was a lost film, but, but for a while now, it is public domain. Right. Um, but anytime you see this film, which you can look up because it's a public oh. domain film, uh, there's the watermarks on it, and those are from him, oh, not that's from great. the original Edison production company. That's fantastic. Which is just kind of funny. Um, and you know what? At some point, we'll probably cover Frankenstein. Maybe we'll do, like, a whole Women in Horror Month this next year. I think that'd be really fun. Um, because Mary Shelley is literally the inventor of science fiction. hmm So, we'll have to cover Frankenstein at some point. Yeah, definitely. You know? Yeah. That shit's fun as hell. And also, I think... I'm pretty sure Frankenstein was kind of her low-key uh, bitch-slapping her husband with a story, and- which I think is delightful. Uh, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, was uh-huh. was very uh, influenced by her husband. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Basically, basically like, Mary you, Shelley did Beyonce's Lemonade with Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Yeah, so, I love it. So yeah, we'll 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 cover. We've got some plans. We've got some plans. Then another first horror movie ever. This is the last one, I think. I think is uh, the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari. I think I've heard of that actually. It's it's famous. It's very famous, and it is considered the first feature length horror film. Okay. So so yeah, it's considered the first. Uh, feature-length horror film because it has a runtime of an hour and 20 minutes and it's from the german expressionist period okay i didn't and know so, the germans had an expressionist period yeah in the in the early 1900s uh that was kind of what was going down in germany and so like 
not only is it known for being the first feature-length horror film, it's also known for having these weird, beautiful sets. Yeah, I'm Googling some images of it right now, and yeah, I can see they're kind of like the one of who I presume is Dr. Caligari walking down this kind of almost triangular-looking hallway that has odd, uh, like, kind of just line work painting all over it. Yeah, so so these sets were, they were uneven sets. They they occasionally, like, went up physically. Um, so it made it, it made it kind of weird to see the actors move around on them. And, like, the odd-looking oh, light, like lighting some... and shadows had been painted onto the sets. Right, I can see the kind of forced perspective in it where it's hard to mm-hmm. tell what's the real hallway built into the set and what's one that's been uh, painted on. There's a really cool picture of, again, I believe Dr. Caligari, who knows? It's almost susical in the way it, like, forces the perspective and he's under a lamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very cool. Yeah, so so that's a... I, I think that that was pretty influential um, in that it's it's this early kind of tonally messing with the viewer. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Rather than just directly kinda... through the story and the content, but actually through how they present it, adding mm-hmm. yeah, adding that whole element of horror through the presentation. Yeah, so that's just just because uh, because I can and because I kind of feel like I want to. <laughs> uh, in the same time period, German expressionism, we have Nosferatu, nineteen twenty-two. Oh, Nosferatu, which we talked about in our vampires episode. Yes, we did. Super classic, absolutely influential. Um, and again, you've got kind of a, uh, it's not nearly as like bonkers looking, but you've got the German expressionism. You've got some really interesting angles, some really interesting lighting, and and you see things that translate into uh, American cinema. Right, and again, like the kind of tonal horror you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tone, yeah. And so now let's get into America and American monster flicks. So many of the early American film industry was made up of European immigrants. Oh, really? Who brought European monsters with them to the U.S. So that's the reason we've got the werewolf and the vampire as like, you know, how we were telling the, the, the stories and they were very, very like Eastern Europe. Yeah. Yeah, Eastern Europe seems very thick with monsters for some reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, it was also in, like, France and England. Yeah. Uh, the werewolves, anyway. But that's just because, like, big wolves hunted them, and so obviously it was werewolf. Yes, obviously. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, that's the reason that, like, the American monster flicks were so saturated with these European stories is because they were European immigrant filmmakers. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And so that's just an interesting thing. And so, like, the first Universal Monsters were showing up in, like, the early 1930s. And (sighs) monster flicks don't really scare me, but I still love them because monsters are simultaneously the other while also being us. Elaborate. So you've got the monster. The monster is, 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 is externally hideous, and that is what clarifies that they are evil. Right. However, they are made internally evil by society. They are rejected by society, and that is what makes them evil. Okay, 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 yeah, I can see you know? that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes 
sometimes in these monster flicks, you'll have these really human moments, like um, in the early Boris Karlov um, Frankenstein, where Frankenstein's monster is meeting with this little girl, and instead of fucking killing the little girl, he, like, plays with her, and, you know, they throw flowers into the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've seen that And it's very sympathetic. Mm Mm-hmm. And... And, you know, at some point you're you're asked to sympathize with the monster, you know, for being misunderstood or whatever. Like the right, monster for being misunderstood, rejected, shit, but yeah. Like, but like, you know, you have this moment of like, no, that's actually very human. Yeah. And it's usually around that point when the monsters are killed by an angry mob. Interesting. Do you think there's and a purpose so, for that? Like that, like an intentional kind of switching between I, like, oh, you empathize with them for just a second, but don't be fooled. Like kind of, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, again, this is one of those, like, I don't know if it was intentional subversion or just, you know, the inherent politicalness of horror films. Yeah. Um, the whole, like, you can empathize with the other, but they're still the other. So they have to die. mm -hmm. But like, I feel like, well, and also, you know, the angry mob is us. Yeah. We're the angry mob. And so like, you know, the audience kind of has to ask themselves who, who, like, who am I here? Am I the monster or am I the angry mob? And which one is actually the real evil? Yeah. So, so, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's a, a political side note for monster films. But to bring this even more political, monster films are absolutely influenced by the first and second world wars. I like this. I want to know more. Like, it's one of those things you say it and I'm like, okay, I can totally see that, but I don't have the background knowledge to like, Go, oh, here's specifically why. Mm-hmm. But, like, of course, world wars would, like, influence horror. Yeah. So with the First World War, you have these soldiers coming back absolutely maimed. Right. And so, again... Handhook car door. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Remember when you were like, oh, I wonder if that was also kind of based on the soldiers coming back from... Yeah. Well... Again, you're at, you know, who's the monster? Because the monster is obviously evil because they're externally ugly. But, like, our soldiers who have been injured in war are supposed to be, like, our American heroes. And yet, and now they're coming back all maimed and externally ugly. Villainizing them for being ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, that's also, like, a really, really important part of, like, early creation of monster flicks. Mm-hmm. Well, then in the Second World War, we have... The horrors of the Holocaust. Which is even worse. (laughs) Yeah. Which, like, as far as recent human history goes, is probably... uh, Everybody's go-to for the most horrific thing that's happened. Right. Hence, uh, Godmaning. You know, and, and, you know, people... Like, everybody has seen pictures from the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. and, And it is horrifying to this day. So, when people were first coming back from the Second World War... With, you know, this knowledge of, yeah, human beings are monsters, a lot of horror Right, finally kind of confronting the whole the monster is us thing. Mm -hmm. Because people, I'm sure, probably didn't have to confront it to that extent. Or or at least uh, the the populace kind of at large, right, didn't have to confront the horror of people in such a visceral way as they did when post-World War II seeing, like, the actual proof of what was going on there. Well, and like, and like, and I think that that's also a really big important part of like the other is the monster or us is the monster mm-hmm. because the that other dichotomy. were the Nazis. 
Right. You know, the Nazis were the other. They were the bad guys. But we were also the soldiers. We were also part of war, which is an inherent... I mean, regardless of what side you're on, war is a pretty monstrous thing. Exactly. And I think think that that was absolutely influential in early horror. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think I think after being faced with such an intense, real horror mm-hmm. of the Holocaust, horror films became a lot more psychological and a lot more somber. Okay. Throughout like the forties. Instead of kind of kooky and spooky. Yeah, instead of instead of like your classic like big larger than life monster flicks where it's like, I am the wolf man. <laughs> ah, I am Wolfman. <laughs> right. It became like, you know, uh, a lot more internal. Yeah. Psychological. Like, yeah, psychological. Yeah. A lot a lot more like Like you know, this movie scares me because it makes me question my own nature. Uh mm-hmm. fuck. Yeah. Yeah, and, and 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 questions of like death and suicide and depression. You know, they wouldn't have said it quite so explicitly back then because but that's clearly what they're alluding to right still considered shell shock but yeah that's the subject matter of these films you know film noir right was was around this time and absolutely they're not interchangeable but they were influencing each other Mm -hmm. film noir and horror films interesting i can see that yeah so then around the 50s uh we've got fear of the russians and fear of atomic bombs Okay, yeah. And a lot of horror became, what if all the bad things that we think might happen actually did happen? (laughs) You know? Right. Like, let's pursue this, all the things we're afraid of, let's actually pursue it through a narrative and really follow mm -hmm. it through and see what that would look like. Yeah, and so, like, you know, fear of technology, fear of the Russian takeover, fear of monsters emerging from irradiated land. Right, adding adding in all those details rather than just being Mm -hmm. like, yeah, obviously that would be bad. Obviously, nuclear yeah. war would be bad and scary. It's like, okay, well, let's really dive into what could potentially, like, every minute yeah. detail of what could happen. Yeah. And so you've got, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is very much like, oh, no, the Russians are coming. And then you've got, like, giant creatures, which, like, Godzilla. Fucking Godzilla. 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 <laughs> does, uh, I, this is, uh, radio, not film, but does War of the Worlds play in in this time? I forget when that was. Well, so War of the Worlds actually was a, uh turned into a horror film in the 50s so yeah absolutely and that was also one of those like fear of technology kind of situations there's a lot of like what about aliens in this time (laughs) what about what about this so yeah that's our that's our like our very very non-exhaustive history (laughs) non-exhaustive yes non-exhaustive but it kind of gives you context yeah context is super important necessary context but you know how i do so, now we're going to get into the history of slashers. And we're going to actually get into the history of slashers. Perfect. And it doesn't start with the film industry. It starts with Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie is bae. I love Agatha Christie. I am a huge <laughs> pro pro eh, pro junkie. And Agatha Christie wrote pro Uh The the okay. Belgium detective. He was, he was Belgian. Belgish. Belsh. pretty much like the belgian version of sherlock holmes was kind of i think that was kind of the vibe of perot okay word 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 
Yeah. So so Agatha Christie is a mystery writer and an absolute badass. She wrote like Murder on the Orient 60... Express. Yeah. Is a really, yeah. really no- notable on the one. She wrote and then there were none. She she wrote like 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 sixty five novels. Again, the women like, of horror more short stories. Like absolute influential boss woman, etc. So she writes and then there were none in nineteen thirty nine. And this has an interesting history <laughs> that is going to get a little problematic. Oh, great. So, this is taken from the final line in a popular children's rhyme that originated as a minstrel song. Oh, minstrels. We remember those. Yeah, which we talked about last year. So, the original title of the minstrel sh- song was Ten Little N-Words. Oh, dear. And we're not going to say... That word because we're not allowed to. We're not allowed That's to. That's just forbidden. Nope. <laughs> Which was the original title of the novel. The original title was Ten Little... Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Agatha! I'm not sure how yeah. I feel about so that. Then it was it was changed to, and then there were none, because uh, even in 1939, the N-word was considered offensive in America. It was America. like, nah, I can't do, sorry. Like, like, I don't think you should have it be titled that. Gonna... Another version of the rhyme is Ten Little Indians, which is actually the version of the rhyme that I'm familiar with. Yeah, that's not, as soon as you said that, I was like, that kind of rang a bell in the back of my head, mm-hmm. it didn't really pop up, but I'm like, there's something there. Yeah, so it's one little, two little, three little. Oh! Yeah, that's, yep. yep, I remember that. And I actually think that that is the version of the rhyme they were using back when I saw And Then There Were None as a stage play, because it's also a stage play oh, Okay, that was written by Agatha Christie. And I think it might have been called Ten Little Indians when I went and saw it as a stage play. The most modernized version of the rhyme is Ten Little Soldier Boys, because that title is substantially less fucking offensive. Right. <laughs> but uh, I think we can all agree that uh, And Then There Were None is probably the best title. Yeah, the least problematic it's, title for it's, sure. It's catchy and it doesn't say the N-word. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, I just found uh, the book cover, uh, the original yes. Agatha Christie novel cover, and it makes it me sure feel... It sure does have the N-word it on sure it. It sure does in big old letters. <laughs> yep, sure does. Just just, just not even, and, and just... just unapologetic just straight up like i'm not doing anything wrong yep (laughs) so that makes me kind of uh you know feel a little bit uncomfortable with me uh being so down with agatha christie like 30 seconds ago i mean there i think i think that you should be able to enjoy something and also recognize its problematic nature see also me with slashers right yeah well, and I think. However, if this were a modern era and Agatha Christie was alive and writing uh, ten little n words, uh, I think it's okay for us to be like, mm, maybe that's, I won't. That's kind of what I was about to bring up. Anymore. Is like I don't want to like justify <laughs> it and be like, oh, this is okay yeah. for these reasons, but also you do have to think about like the time and the place and go, okay, like how bad was she being for the context of her time and place? Still yeah. uncouth. And and but... again, she was English. And if you recall our discussion of minstrel shows from our episode right, that lasted a last lot longer year, in England, didn't it? Up that until like forever, what, almost in until England. the nineties, wasn't it? It was so uh, long. 70s, that 80s, that yeah, it TV was a show, that TV show, I feel like lasted until like nineteen seventy eight. Is how long it went to. 
Um, so it's definitely rounding up a lot, I mean, but still, it's, it, yeah. Basically, England uh, mm, had some problems. Did so, so I guess, and this probably doesn't even really matter, but I'm curious. Uh, you know, again, my familiarity with Agatha Christie pretty much starts and stops with Murder on the Orient Express and Perot. So the story of And Then There Were None, was it just totally like... We're getting into okay, the story okay. right now. Thank you. Yes, please do. I need yeah. help. I mean, that's the reason that it's influential for slashers. Okay. Is it really so about not, little black children? No, not at all. Okay, so the, <laughs> the title, that's what I was wondering, was like, is the title totally just like a reference so to the poem the and that's it? the title is, it is a reference to the poem. Okay, there's nothing to so do we'll with like it. the character, okay, okay. There's there's no uh, little n-words in the story itself. Okay. I don't think that really makes it better, but it helps me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, it is, it is a reference to the poem. Okay. If she's making an illusion, I feel like that's slightly less bad than straight up writing a book about. Like... No, no, she wasn't like, let's murder black children. <laughs> right. Just alluding to racially like unacceptable poetry is, is a little bit better, I think. Uh, well, well, I, I will tell you the story Uh-oh, now. I shouldn't say, I should stop talking. <laughs> so the story is super like Clue. Uh-huh. Okay, great. Like the Tim Curry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I know Clue. Come on now maybe our audience doesn't okay fine i forget i I mean i'm sure they do but like maybe maybe um uh so it starts with 10 strangers Mm -hmm. invited to this mansion on an isolated island for a series of whatever reasons you know offer of employment offer for a holiday you know whatever is appropriate for them right Mm -hmm. and they're informed that the hosts mr ulick norman owen and his wife una nancy owen have not arrived yet but instructions were left for those who were there. Now, in each of their rooms, there is a framed copy of the nursery rhyme, Ten Little N-Words. Okay. So. They're all kind of like, what is this about? After dinner, a gramophone record is played for the guests, which accuses each of the guests of murder. And then one of the guests... The judge, Justice Lawrence John Walgrave, deduces that not only do none of the guests know their host, but that the names U.N. Owen are a play on the word unknown. Perfect. At this point, the guests are slowly killed off one by one by an unseen murderer. An unknown unknown murderer. murderer. Um, And the deaths correlate to the lyrics in the rhyme. Right, I so I I perused the the rhyme very quickly. I didn't want to get, like, get distracted, but like something about choking on a stick or like I don't know. Yeah, so I will read Ten Little Soldier Boys." Oh, thank you. Yes, <laughs> lovely. Which which is the most acceptable adaptation because we don't fucking say that word on this podcast. <laughs> Ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little soldier boys sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. They died in his sleep? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> weird, I'm sorry. It's like a weird way to, way to go in a murder. Well, yeah, they're all weird. <laughs> eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in half, and then there were six. Six little soldier boys playing with a hive. A bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little soldier boys going in for law. One got in chancery, and then there were four. Fa. Fa. 
Four little soldier boys going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. Three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. Two little soldier boys sitting in the sun. One got fizzled up, and then there was one. One little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself, and then there were none. What the fuck kind of poetry is this? Was this meant for children? <sighs> Rockabye baby in a treetop. Yeah, okay, I know that. <laughs> I, I know that there's a lot of, like, really creepy and fucked up allusions in a lot of, like, children's literature and poetry back from back in the day. But I just, I guess I haven't come across one so far that directly is just like, this kid was lonely and he hanged himself. <laughs> like, Yeah, that one's not great. <laughs> very drastic ending. Yeah. So basically, you know, the plot line is this, this poem. And like, for example, the, the bumblebee stung one, the sixth person or the sixth person left who dies. Mm-hmm. So I guess the fourth person to die dies after being stuck with a hypodermic needle okay and so like each of their deaths correlate with the song right at least to an extent yeah and if you think about it that's you know this 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 unknown unseen killer slowly killing off one by one this group of people oh that's such a common that's been so that's the that's that is the slasher format. format isn't it yep so that is why this is the first step in our history of slashers is a novel by Agatha Christie. I like novels. <laughs> That's fine. That's a good thing. We we stand nerds at Palm Pitch Pod. We stand nerds. Yes. <laughs> we stand nerds. So I I gave you, you know, blah 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 history of horror up to the 50s. Mm-hmm. Around this time, we start getting psychological horrors again. Like, with the with birds and stuff? Now, birds, I guess, wouldn't be psychological. Well, we're going to talk about Alfred Hitchcock. Okay. For sure. So, um, so two really influential movies. The first one is called Peeping Tom. I'm scared already. In 1960. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it was directed by Michael Powell. And Peeping Tom took this sympathetic look at a murderous voyeur. And it shocked audiences and effectively ended Powell's career. Oh dear, he went a little too hard in the paint too fast. Well, if you think about it, this is around. This is the same period of time as the Hayes Code. What is the Hayes Code? And oh, you don't know what the Hayes I don't know Code, what the Hayes is? Code is? Oh my God, we might have to talk, like, do an episode on the Hayes Code because, like, bitch. So the Hayes Code was a set of moral, quote unquote, guidelines for filmmakers oh. that existed between 1934 and 1968. So some like active censorship shit. Absolutely, it did some crazy shit. So, so for one, it did some absolute bullshit things to the film industry, like outright banning depictions of homosexuality and miscegenation what's miscegenation uh interracial marriages okay yeah also in the hayes code it forbid ridiculing the law or creating sympathy for its violation so basically peeping tom showing a sympathetic look at a murderous voyeur right you couldn't show him as being a dynamic character multi-dimensional character and so that's the reason that it probably ended this dude's career because sort of multi-dimensional view yeah a sympathetic look at the villain and that's you know that's so interesting because 
you know, I mean, and granted, this is me speaking in like 2020 as like, you know, language arts instructor. It's like making your characters multidimensional like that is like kind of integral to creating a good story, whether it's for film or radio or whatever, like to oh, to to no, write any kind of band like Disney movies were too fucking right. That's so, that's such a trip to me. It's like what that takes out anything that's a quality that's that's a quality production, whether it's a uh, quality literature, or quality film, whatever. Like mm-hmm. to not be able to like make your characters a, multidimensional. A dynamic character was like, banned. Characters suck. Even if it's yeah. somebody you end up, you you need to be able to identify even with the bad guy a little tiny bit. Otherwise, they suck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't bring this up during during the like monster discussion, but you know, this is 1934, so monster movies were like, mm-hmm. according to the Hayes Code, the monster had to be destroyed by the end of the film. Period. That is so crazy. Yeah, I've never. Like, basically, they required a happy ending. Wow. Quote unquote. That's some weird. I would definitely like Isn't to do an wild? episode on the Hayes Code and learn more about where it came from and what the yeah, kind it's, of it's, what we can interpret their intention shit. to be because that. That, to me, seems like some very intentional social programming shit that, like, makes me oh, wicked yeah. uncomfortable. No, I think it did some really problematic shit to the American public, but, like, that's a different episode. <laughs> that's a different episode. Um, <laughs> I say staring into I know, I love this perfect. I wish our viewers could see it. Just, like, <laughs> the, like, frustrated with the world. Like, just, I'm bringing my wine glass to my lips as I finish this sentence because, oh, my God. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah, we don't need to go down that road. Same year. And this is way more important. Everybody, I can tell, everybody's screaming because it's 1960 and I haven't brought up this movie yet. Psycho. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Alfred Hitchcock. So this movie is technically inspired by Ed Gein. We will cover him someday, I swear to God. But have we not? Have it just been you and I have talked about him a lot? Is that it? Because like. You oh, say yeah, Ed Gein, and I'm like, bing, bing, like, my light bulbs go off. I... Oh, yeah. Everybody knows who Ed Gein is. We've just never actually done, like, a full okay. series on him. I not say an episode, because we know we can't finish that in one episode. That's too big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's too big. He inspired so many fucking horror movies. Holy shit. There's no way we could just do one episode on Ed Gein. <laughs> okay, valid. <laughs> so, someday, someday, put your pants back on. Listen. <laughs> put your pants back on. So in this film, there's this really iconic murder scene. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows Janet Lee. She's stabbed to death in the shower. Yep. But there's prob- there, there, there's no blood. Probably because of the code. The code had to do with showing... That's so weird. Yeah. No, the hate... Like, you can depict like, a woman being walked in on in the shower by a murderer, but you can't depict the blood. Anybody that doesn't know the Hayes Code, like, just look it up. There's, there's this huge list of crazy shit. Honestly, I imagine that he, you know, kind of push some boundaries by showing a woman in the shower getting murdered yeah you know like i am i imagine that he he came a little and there's blood in the shower like there's you see blood in the drain Mm -hmm. but like there's no blood on her yeah it's a very technically tame yeah especially compared to our standards our modern standards yeah so so yeah there's there's no you don't really see like the knife entering her body or you know um, any like actual nudity actually yeah you don't see blood just alluded to you see it in the drain but you don't see it coming from her yeah. um it's a very tame to our modern standards scene but everybody knows this scene it's a very iconic well scene. obviously i mean as soon as you said psycho i'm like er, film, er, er, like yeah 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 so so one of the things that made this film so unique was the way that it took away the safety the audience once felt 
So uh, up until this point, for the most part, horror films were set in these like gothic European castles, you know? Right, it was a they different They were very far setting. away. We don't we don't have any fucking castles in America. Right, it's not really bringing it home and making it something that's like yeah. a potential for you to have to deal with. And even, you know, your average fucking European doesn't hang out in castles. Right. You know? Yeah. So, like, the European Dracula castle. It's still more of a fairy tale kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a European castle. It was a podunk motel. And the killer wasn't some deformed monster or alien like we've seen in previous times. The monster is among us. It was a very pleasant boy mm-hmm. who loved his mom and was, and was being supportive to his mom and was being kind to the lead girl mm-hmm. and you know he was weird but like right. he was very psychopath. he was just a weird boy yeah. right and i think i think that's one of my favorite things about like every time the slasher genre does something new mm-hmm. that actually changes the genre is they add something else for you to be afraid of they take away one more safe space interesting yeah I, I can see exactly what you're talking about. I think I think that's one of the reasons that it's it's one of my favorite genres. I've I listened to this keeps on reminding me of I listened to uh, I really like Wondery for uh, true crime. I mean I think they just have really good production value and I think you know they have they have okay. the budget and the team to do it right. So I listen to a lot of their mm-hmm. Wondery podcasts and I listened to one about the um, the Golden State Killer right who mm-hmm. and and he started out as a peeping tom and right. and. Um, I finished, you know, I listened to that podcast in like an afternoon, one weekend or something, you know, just binged it. And still, and it's good. It's good that it motivates me to put the stick in my sliding glass door in my bedroom. But still, yeah. I like hear like, you know, the neighborhood cats will like jump up on my porch or something in the middle of the night. And I'll hear a rustle or this, you know, because he would he would go and he would look in the window and he would fucking tap on the window before, you know, he would try and freak people out. Right. It was part of his game. And so now anytime I hear like, I'm not in the middle of fucking nowhere, but anytime I hear like any, anything, I'm like, there's a slasher on my porch. And like, that's in my bedroom, <laughs> right? Like, like a story. I mean, I voluntarily listened to it, but still a story someone told me like months or weeks later, I'm having fear in my own bedroom. So you're right. It really gets mm-hmm. at your safe spaces like a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's that's one of my favorite things about about slashers is that they they did a really fantastic job taking away one more safe space, you know. Mm-hmm. So now we're gonna cross the ocean again, pop back into Europe, because around the sixties and seventies there were these Italian crime films called giallos. Giallos. Yeah. I feel like they were extra gritty. Were they extra gritty? They were extra gritty, yeah. Way to go, Italy. So, so they'd definitely be your, because you know, because they were like crime flicks, yeah. but they were like raunchy and bloody and yeah. shit. So American cin- cinema is super influenced by Italian cinema, right? When you started bringing up like spaghetti westerns, exactly spaghetti western, which apparently in Japan they're called macaroni west- <laughs> westerns, which brings me so much joy. <laughs> I think I mean it's but, like, noodles, yeah, but Italy, I think of macaroni as being a lot more American, yeah. Yeah, it brings me a lot of joy. But yeah, no, Italy, Japan, and America have this weird love triangle when it comes to cinema, and that's how we get shit like spaghetti westerns. That makes perfect sense, though, too, because there's a lot of crossover between, like, um, Japanese kind of, like, samurai culture and cowboy culture and the way that those stories are told. Like, that's perfect. No, literally, like, samurai movies and westerns were influencing each other at the same same time. Same, same, same. Yeah. 
And then, and then you know, you've got Italy in there. Yeah, like I don't know how Italy. I don't know how Italy works itself in there, but I'm sure. I'm sure it's interesting. Well, you know, spaghetti western. Yeah. Bam, Italy worked itself in. So anyway, Italian crime films totally influencing America. And in 1971, we have A Bay of Blood by Mario Bava. A Bay of Blood. Mario Bava, that's a good name. Yeah. So for some reason, this movie has like 5 million goddamn names. <laughs> There's Ecologia del Delito, which which means ecology of crime. Ooh. There's also Chain Reaction, Carnage, Twitch of the Death Nerve, <laughs> and Bloodbath. Twitch of the Death Nerve. I like that one. Which... Yeah, Bloodbath and Twitch of the Death Nerve are super, super common names okay. for it. I'm, I've, I've heard all three, A Bay of Blood, Bloodbath, Twitch of the Death Nerve, like, seen them on the box cover for this film. Mm-hmm. So in this film, it is a giallo, but kind of like the Agatha Christie story, we'll see some correlations. So this rich heiress dies, and her family comes to her property to get her estate story mm-hmm. sorted out. Like you do. And then they start killing each other. (laughs) But also, a separate group of hippies shows up and starts, like, having sex on the property and, like, doing drugs and shit. For, like, whatever, there's no reason. they also get caught up in this weird killing spree, and so they start getting killed off. Cool, okay. So there's not technically one masked killer, since kind of everyone's the masked killer. Okay. But the kills mm-hmm. and the settings and also, like, the group of, like, youth that's, like, That's, like, being morally impure. Mm-hmm. Getting killed off. So slasher. Right. Well, so that's, fucking like, slasher. I brought up earlier um, when we were very first getting started, the cabin in the woods, right? That's that whole, mm-hmm. you know, group of youths going out for the express mm-hmm. purpose of having fun and being inappropriate, getting slowly picked off. Yeah. So, so this is, this is a big, like... And, and and this movie in particular, like, some of the kills are shot for shot in Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th 2. Oh, really? Yeah, it's wild. Hmm. <laughs> shot for shot. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's Jallos. You can't, you can't ignore them in a history of slashers. So, let's pause for politics again and go back to violence in America. Okay, yes. The Vietnam War. Gotta love violence in America. Mm-hmm. It started in 1955 and ended in 1975. Here are some things to keep in mind about the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. The war was fought between the Communist North, which was backed by nations like the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, Mm -hmm. and the anti-communist South, which was backed by nations like the United States, Mm -hmm. South Korea. And the war was not so much two nations fighting for land like most wars tend to be, it was fighting against an idea. We were fighting communism in Asia. Yeah. Which meant that we somewhat came to understand, but never really came to understand. Kind of an impossible task. Fighting an idea. Or ideological exactly wars don't really easy. go so well, because how do you know what you're even fighting? Yeah. And then when you win and then when you lose, like, how do you even measure those things? Like, if you're fighting yeah. an idea, like, yeah, how do you, it's not like you move the battlefront forward and you know that you've, you've progressed towards your side of the war. Yeah. You just move the battlefront. So, so like, I think that, and, and, and like, it came to the point where, like, America was bombing the same empty fields over and over again, mm. you know, like, 
I think that the American public kind of came to understand like, oh, fighting a concept isn't a great idea. But I think that like the American culture still never learned that. That's why we have the war on terror and the war on drugs. Right. Like we're fighting concepts, which is not a thing that you can fight. Right. Well, and fighting a war is kind of like that last resort, like, you know, trying to rectify or reset the situation. So unless an ideological issue gets to the point where there's a physical symptom, right? Mm-hmm. Then what are you fighting? Yeah, and I mean, like, there was a there was a background that made it so that, like, um, there there was there was shit with like the French, which was an ally of America, right. that made it so that we wanted to go into Vietnam. Like, there were there were actual like things happening that right. made there it were so that we went into Vietnam, but ultimately we were fighting a concept. Yeah. Which is not a thing that is winnable. Yeah, ever. Also, this war was televised. This is the first televised war. It was extremely televised. Mm-hmm. So violent shit was being sent back to America and watched on screens in front of the whole family. Right. And I think that's a really interesting thing, too, because, you know, I think regardless of our obviously opinions of being like, it's okay to consume horror and disturbing media. Um, I think that that's something that's a really noteworthy turning point culturally. This, this, mm-hmm. you know, I had, it had to have been traumatizing, you know, not obviously traumatizing so. for the people that were there, but culturally when you're not prepared for that to then have your kind mm-hmm. of, that has to shake your core values. And I think again, Again, you know, as much as I tend to not go in for this whole, like, you know, violent video games and make people violent, you know, this, that, and the other, I think, like, how could sort of being confronted, when you're not used to a culture that consumes violence like that, how could that not impact people who would then go on to commit violent acts, you know, to just, like, come home, you know, somebody who's already has all these psychological sort of predispositions towards being violent, to then, like, come home yeah. one day and with the family sit down and watch the Vietnam War happening? Like, how could that not push somebody over the edge in terms well, of violence? And also, I, I, not even just, like, whether or not it would cause violence, but whether or not it would affect people's psyche, it's real. I talk about this a lot when I'm talking about, like, what my tolerance for horror movies mm-hmm. is. I can watch some pretty fucked up shit. Um, psychologically, physically, gory, whatever. Yeah. And I can, you know, I can be disturbed by it in the moment and then walk away and be fine. Because it's not real. You know, I have seen some of the more notoriously disturbing films and been okay after the fact. I cannot watch Snuff or, I've talked to you about this, fail compilation videos (laughs) when it's clear that somebody got hurt. Give me panic attacks. I like to, I do actually have to confess, I love to watch fail compilation videos, but when people go... I love them when they're funny. Th- uh, yeah, there are, there are some, there are some that cross the line for sure. I think that my, you know, my uncle sends me videos like that all the time because, you know, we just bro out and like laugh about that kind of shit together. And um, mm-hmm. I think the reason that some fail compilation videos, even though uh, there's some really bad ones where you're like, oh my God, they like either died or the rest of their life is permanently altered. For me, there is a, it's, it's, there's a little bit more acceptability in that simply because I'm like, you're consenting to this. Someone's not attacking you. Someone's not victimizing you. 
it may be shitty for me to laugh at it, but you're not a victim. You did this to yourself. I can't. Like, I, I specifically remember once upon a time uh, watching a fail compilation video where there was, like, this really big car crash. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't like this, that. this car flipped, and I had a panic attack. Yeah, that's a little... And I don't think that he consented to... He's no, that's that's over. more I, that's you know? that's more extreme for but sure. But also, like, I don't like I don't like watching real people actually get injured. Right, and see, yeah, I grew up watching that, Jackass. That with me. So, like, that's kind of um, where I'm yeah, this perspective. I'm I, I, I mean, in that situation, like, but you like, you get conditioned like, to those I'm things. I'm gonna I'm gonna hammer a nail into my leg. Ow, that hurt. Like that. that or I'm gonna attempt a crazy dirt bike jump with like a little person on my motorcycle. You know, <laughs> like right. I just think that speaks to conditioning, right? And I think that ties in perfectly with the whole Vietnam War and the shock and the trauma that could come from being the kind of first generation that would experience that uh, through media, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. you know, we, we can talk about those kinds of things because we've been pretty desensitized to a lot of different aspects or types of violence from a very early age mm-hmm. that the people in that time wouldn't have been. Yeah. And like, um, yeah. And, and, and... You know, there's all of the, like, oh, violent video games cause violence or violent movies cause violence. But, like, literally, the world has become less and less violent overall as time has progressed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're in the 60s and 70s. Like, that's not that long ago. Yes, absolutely, I believe that, like, domestic violence in the home was a lot more common then mm-hmm. than it is now. But I think that, like, you know, this isn't the, the fucking, like roman empire where you literally went to the coliseum to watch somebody get eaten alive right for exactly fun. you know like watching murder and death and war was not a daily occurrence for these people right there's not a cultural precedent for it and then because the war was televised it it was and 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 the the war was intense like it wasn't <sighs> i i think that i think that this is another thing to keep well, in mind it was a new it was a new type type and level of war yeah, a lot of it was guerrilla warfare, which is a lot more, like, gritty. Yeah. You know, you're just walking through the jungle, and then you you, st- you, you step on a punji trap, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> or, or you know, you step on a landmine, you know? Like, you know, people were watching some really horrifying shit live on TV. Well, and I think, too, I think there's something... And maybe this is totally tangential and not at all important, but there's, I think... When it's a part of your culture in a very real and visceral sense, like you're talking about the Roman Colosseum kind of stuff, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, you have a you have a structure for coping with that information that you get, right? There's yeah. there's a uh, reverence for people being brave and for sacrificing, and there's a belief system that mm-hmm. maybe makes you more okay with death, and there's all these kind of cultural safeguards to help you process what you're right. dealing with. Like the concept of Valhalla. Right. Right, exactly. There's, you know, there's... you die in battle, you go to epic heaven as opposed right. to regular there's, heaven. Right, there's like some infrastructure <laughs> socially to like kind of help you deal with that. Whereas again, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking like 1950s, 1960s America and people are just seeing this. It's like, especially too, you talk about the, um, the Hays yeah, Code. you have the Hays Code, right, where people are being like super coddled and protected and then all of a sudden, yeah. so it's like fictional narratives cannot show this shit and then all of a sudden you have reality in the, hitting you in the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the fifties and sixties, you had the white flight from the cities to suburbia, mm-hmm. where it was like, let's make the the world even more coddled. And so, like, yeah, I'll slap my wife around at home, but for the most part, nobody's actually seeing any real substantial violence anywhere. Mm-hmm. In the sixties, uh, especially like the mid to late sixties, Americans began to protest the war in earnest. And by the nineteen seventies, the majority of Americans no longer supported the Vietnam War. 
Like, it was a majority. I think by 1970, only a third of America thought that going to Vietnam in the first place was a good idea. Yeah. So, so nobody was down for it anymore. And by 1969, the first draft lottery held since World War II began for a war that the majority of the country no longer supported. Meaning Americans were not only angry with their government, they were scared. Right. Valid. <laughs> so there's this culture shift that happens around this time from the peace and love movement of the 60s to this emotionally exhausted sensation of defeat in the 70s. Mm. Back to movies. Back to movies. <laughs> Speaking of being emotionally exhausted and the reprieve that we all get from movies, movies. All right. So in 1972, Wes, a- Wes Craven, not Wes Anderson, I am a dumb ship. Wes Craven uh, has his film debut with Last House on the Left, which is one of the earliest examples of an exploitation flick and I believe the first example of a rape and revenge exploitation flick. Okay. So. For me, having these little, like, I just looked it up because for me, having the, like, kind of super succinct definitions help because I always tend to get exploitation and black exploitation confused. And well, black exploitation is a exploit- kind of right. So, an exploitation, just like for everyone, is a film intended to attract an audience by means of its sensationalist or controversial content. Yeah. Would you say that fits with your so- impression of exploitation films? Absolutely, yeah. Exploitation films are just like exploiting they're supposed to be shocking. something sensational. They're attracting audiences yeah, by they're being supposed shocking. to be shocking, and that's what they're cashing in on. Wes Craven definitely was cashing in on rape. So, Last House on the Left was, it was very gritty, it was very violent, it was very bloody. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking about how Psycho didn't really have any blood. There was a lot Oodles of, of blood. blood in Last House on the Left. A lot of blood. And I think that that's a really great example of the early 70s and the the culture of America, especially because, like, the way the film ends is, like, you know, and we talked about this before with Night of the Living mm-hmm. Dead, which came out in 1968 and kind of had a similar, basically, the film ends and you go, okay, so all of this violence happened and I'm still left with nothing. Still left with nothing. There's no resolution. The resolution is that I'm left with nothing. Oh, okay. You know? There's an absolute resolution. There is a there's a proper end. It's just that the end is nothingness. It's an emotionally exhausted sensation of defeat. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, that is fitting. Kind of like the cultural sensation of the time. And I was writing about these, you know, the the 60s to 70s, like the 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 cultural feeling. And I was like, oh, my God, millennials. Yeah. <laughs> the cyclical nature like, Man, of I've never identified with boomers more in my entire goddamn life. <laughs> <laughs> so then um, two years later, we've got Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the same year. These are by some considered the first slasher films. So Black Christmas, it uh, it's a Canadian film. It was originally released as Silent Night, Evil Night in America. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, I'm really glad they went back to Black, Black Christmas. <laughs> yeah, Black Christmas is a little bit more catchy title. It's a, it's a lot better. It's a lot better. It follows a group of sorority sisters around, you know, it's Christmas who receive threatening phone calls until eventually they start getting picked off one by one. 
Mm-hmm. So this is inspired by the urban legend of the babysitter with the man upstairs. The phone was co- call was coming from inside the house kind of deal. The phone call was coming inside the yeah. house. Yeah. So, you know, we'll cover that someday as well, probably. And then Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, is an American film, follows a group of youths while on a stop at their family's old farmhouse, and they wind up getting attacked by this deranged family that lives next door, specifically a chainsaw-wielding man who covers his face with a mask forged in human skin. Again, inspired by Ed Gein. Fucking Ed Gein. (laughs) We'll get to him someday, I promise. (laughs) So... I am not entirely sure why those aren't considered slashers by some. But the first official slasher Mm -hmm. is Halloween from 1978. This is Halloween. This is at least considered the first mainstream slasher. Maybe because, like, holy shit, it made oodles in the box office. Also, the fucking music. John Carpenter literally always slaps. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently the industry was demanding the babysitter story again. So it's got Jamie Lee Curtis, who is Janet Lee's daughter. Who's Janet Lee? She's the main character in Psycho. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yes. Cool. So, so literally it's like, it's like a family family tradition of being (laughs) women in horror. Scream Queens. I did not realize that. That's fantastic. And again, you know, this is a revolutionary film for the slashers, mm-hmm. or for, for the slasher industry, mm-hmm. question mark. It fucks with what people thought was safe. Like, you've got this pleasant suburb after the white flight from the cities into the suburbs. You know, you've got this beautiful, perfect little suburb of nothing but white people with their 2.5 children and their white picket fences. And they're all being terrorized by a killer who can just wander into your house and stab you into a cabinet. And stab you into a cabinet. <laughs> yeah. Which is low-key my favorite scene in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> He's just kind of staring at the dude that he stabbed into the wall. Huh. Hmm. <laughs> and what's interesting about, you know, John Carpenter's Halloween is it's surprisingly not that gory. There's not a lot of blood. There's not a lot of mm-hmm. violence. You know, there's a masked man who's going around wreaking havoc and killing people, but, like, it's not that bloody. Right. It's not, like, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And then you get Friday the 13th <laughs> in 1980, which, in case everybody didn't already know this, Friday the 13th is my favorite slasher <laughs> franchise. I love it so much. I love it so <laughs> much. <laughs> And legitimately, it was just a bunch of people trying to cash in on the Halloween franchise. But it revolutionized slashers in two ways. Mm -hmm. First, there's a lot more gore. This is a super bloody movie. Is that kind of like a cornerstone of slasher flicks is like gore, you'd say? Mm Mm-hmm. It it, it adds the like, holy shit, there's a lot of gore in this aspect to slashers. And again, it fucks with what's safe. Because who is the fucking killer? Jason. In the first one, it's not Jason. Oh, it's not? It's Jason's mom. Oh, that's right. The sweet little sweater-wearing old lady. Right. And so so it fucks with your, like... Perception of who a bad guy even is. So we've established the slasher. Mm -hmm. A masked villain is murdering a group of people, usually with some kind of bladed instrument because slash. (laughs) Slasher. 
we have slashed. Now, again, let's look at the timing. Okay, yes. Post-Vietnam, Reagan's America, Cold War, AIDS. The country's in a big old clusterfuck. Big old clusterfuck. Big old clusterfuck. At this point, it becomes... How can we kill people in a way that will surprise audience from the last interesting way that we killed people? Okay. So it's like kind of upping the ante. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is the golden age of slashers. The market is just fucking flooded. Right. With B-horror. Because they're cheap just... to make and there's a huge yeah. reward. There's a slasher flick for every fucking holiday and then sometimes double, you know, let's let's redo this holiday. You know, there's a bunch of fucking Christmas slashers. Yeah. And at, at some point, the audience start rooting for the killer, partially because the audience are having fun watching, watching all the, the weird ways that Hollywood is making people die. Or probably specifically Tom Savini, because man, that guy had his fingers in all of the slasher pies. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know if this is like a universal experience, but I feel as if I feel as if slasher movies, either because of lazy writing or because it made it easier on the audiences who were kind of starting to root for uh-huh. the killer, made the victims less likable. I think that's true too. Yeah, they were always kind of like, especially too, when you think about the tropes of like you know all the girls alone in the cabin kind of thing. Like you watch like Scream and stuff, and yeah. you're like, oh, she's a I bitch. Feel like, I feel like, like the final girl tended to be this nice little innocent thing, but like all of her friends who would eventually get murdered were like two-dimensional tropes that were just assholes. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just little bastard sure. assholes that you just did not mm-hmm. care about. I would agree with that completely. And and I wonder I wonder if that kind of affected, like, the politics of the film itself. Because, like, these accidentally... I don't, I don't think that this was done on purpose. I think... I think that accidentally the slasher industry created morality films. Right. Do drugs, have sex, die. Yeah, they told, I mean, that's totally, I mean, yeah, completely. And the final girl is the virgin who doesn't, you know, drink and do mm-hmm. drugs. I have no idea why she's hanging out with these people. Right, like, <laughs> what is she doing there if that's not her bag? And, you know, through through her virtue mm-hmm. and also through dumb luck. And sometimes being rescued. She survives. Sometimes being rescued. Yeah, at the same time, she's the one who's smart enough and strong enough and savvy enough to take down the killer. And so, like... <sighs> there's this like there's this weird like problematic sexism with slashers in like you know <laughs> for one they're morality films you know have sex do drugs die and the girl who doesn't have sex is the one who survives and also a lot of times the final girl is like weirdly incompetent yeah <laughs> but at the same time like there's this weird feminism to it of like there's this one final girl who is smart enough and strong enough to fucking take down the killer Right, and that's and that's who it is that takes down the killer. It's not the yeah. tough jock, and it's not the police, and it's it, not... It's not the tough jock, it's not the police, it's this fucking teenage girl. Right, who's seen as being super sweet and soft and, again, incompetent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and with everything, I think, you know, it's even more complicated than that. What are teenagers doing? They're smoking pot and having sex. Yep. You know, like, legitimately, I think especially with, like, John Carpenter, he wasn't, like, trying to make a morality film. He was trying to make a film about teenagers getting picked up. And that's what teenagers would be doing if they're alone. To, yeah. And he was like, well, what do teenagers do? You know? And and then, you know, if you think about it, like, this is just speaking to real fears. What are women scared of? Being murdered by yeah, men. pretty much. Like, <laughs> most likely way to go? Murdered by men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then, you know, but, like, to add some more subversiveness to it, sometimes the killer is a woman. Mm -hmm. 
again again going back to Friday the 13th. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and you know, and that's not the only example. There are there are other stories where, you know, the killer was like the 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 final girl all along, yeah. you know, the girl that you thought was the final girl was actually the killer, mm-hmm. you know. Shit like that. And then on top of all of this, and I'm not sure if this fil- the, if this particular industry has an easy way out cuz you know, like Oh, it's not really a morality film. I'm just showing teenagers do teenager things. Yeah. Sexualized violence against women. <laughs> That's kind of a major thing, I think, in the horror industry across the board, isn't it? Like, that's yeah. like kind of the key but I think problematic the components. Really fucking like. Yeah. Because like in a ghost movie, you don't have the ghost coming and murdering the woman just after she's had sex. Right. Exactly. You don't see her tits right before she dies. <laughs> but in a slasher movie, the slasher or the murderer or whatever she's she's getting ready for her boyfriend to come over and she's got her tits out or or it's during or just after sex and she's still got her tits out or she's showering or she's laying in the bed yeah and that's when she's violently murdered that said here's another problem the more popular movies were the ones with R ratings. Right. Well, and the thing is, I mean... And a super easy way to get an R rating is to have a woman take her Well, and two, I, I, I mean, even if it's not through the vehicle of like, oh, this is an R movie, so it's more popular. But, you, you know, it's just like now, right? Like, thirst trap. You want to get likes, you want to get views, titties. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. Yeah. And like, and like, even I usually prefer R-rated horror films. Mm-hmm. You know, if I see a horror movie and it's rated PG-13 and I've not seen like a bunch of really great reviews on it, I'm likely to be kind of suspicious like, of mm-hmm. it as a good yeah. film. Like I at least expect the R-rated films to be more scary, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, even I fall into the trap of like, oh, well it's R-rated so it's yeah. better. And so I'm probably more likely to see a woman with her tits out getting violently murdered. And so yeah, like- I get what you're saying. I don't know, man. Like, I think that... I, I think it's it's complicated. Hashtag it's complicated. Drink. I don't... Okay, so basically, I don't think that these horror movie creators meant to tell audiences this, particularly women. But that's what ended up happening. But I think... I think that they did end up telling audiences this, particularly women. Yeah. You have sex, you die. Oh, I think... I mean, yeah, there's... Intention is, you know. I mean... And I don't think that it stopped teenagers from having sex. I think it just did some problematic shit to well, society. Well, I think it just kind of... I think <laughs> it provides a really um, convenient justification for violence against women for people who don't uh, want or have the ability to really think about it on a deeper level. It's just like this thing of... Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the danger, I think. Or I think the area where I can kind of agree with this sort of social apprehension about gory or violent or graphic films because I think that mm-hmm. as a producer, you can't ensure that the person consuming your media has the necessary, you know, mental, emotional stability, age, whatever it is that, that makes them be able to, to separate sort of the story you're telling them from implying that on their own reality, right? So, you know, again, you get somebody who watches tons and tons and tons of videos where you know, women are being murdered after sex and it it may plant that seed in their head of like, that's totally acceptable to, you know, punish or be violent towards a woman for being sexual because that's the media I've been consuming. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm not saying, because I love slashers. I love slashers. End of story. I love slashers. But like, I just want people to think complexly about 
the shit that they consume. You know? Right, and I think that's exactly what it comes down to, and I think that's why it's so easy for people to vilify horror films, is because people would rather blame... Not think complexly. Yeah, they'd rather just blame the media source than blame their own lack of interest or ability in, in yeah, in, in complex thought. Yeah. So I just, I just want people to think complexly. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. You know, I love slashers. I fucking love slashers. But I also acknowledge it is a problematic genre. Yes. <laughs> but I love slashers. I love I'm not going to stop watching slashers just because ladies get killed with their titties <laughs> out. Because I know that just because a lady has her titties out doesn't mean that I should pitchfork her to death. Good job, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so we're in the middle of the golden age of slashers. Literally, a slasher is coming out every goddamn weekend. So now we get into the downfall of the golden age bum, of slashers. Bum, slashers bum. never die. I don't think they ever will die. But we're in the downfall. Okay. So for one, people start getting bored of the genre. Like it's wild and crazy and titillating to watch all of these new and exciting ways for new and exciting masked figure to kill a person. But eventually you've seen right. it all. There's only so much you can do. And then Silent Night, Deadly Night in 1984. It's a normal slasher. But Santa's the killer. Yes. <laughs> Which would have been fine, except for they showed ads for this film featuring Santa as the killer. And moms all over the country flipped their goddamn shit. Oh, no. And there Suburban white women. And there are nationwide protests. Oh, my God. Which means that theaters start taking the movie out of screening. How ridiculous. And so slasher industry starts being like like targeted by like the (laughs) ethics police yeah um and so like that's when stuff starts going down that said same year nightmare on elm street Mm -hmm. wes craven shows up oh hello wes and this film does two new things for slashers one it infiltrates one more goddamn safe place dreams your fucking sleep Like, oh, I'll be fine if I go to bed. No, you won't. No, you won't. <laughs> Second, it brings overt paranormal elements into the slasher genre. Right. Like, like yes, Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers keep coming back from the dead. But up until this point, if we're being realistic about things, the killers have been real human yeah. beings. Whereas, like, Freddy Krueger is kind of like this, like, not quite ghost entity ghoul yeah. thing. And bam, the slasher is rejuvenated. Oh, you know, you've got Child's Play in 1988, where you know a doll is haunted by a serial killer. I think possessed. Uh, you got the Candyman in 1992, but like <sighs> this rejuvenation doesn't totally last. You know, they're still ultimately people are still kind of bored of watching new and exciting ways for people right. to die. And so in the 90s, you get self-aware slashers. Yes, I like when things are self-aware. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I think I think that generally speaking, this is a universal experience for people is we like when things are self-aware. So again, a fucking again, Wes Craven shows up <laughs> with Scream in 1996, and Scream plays with yeah. the formula. Basically, like, so I didn't really talk about this, um, but like in the 80s, they had these self-aware monster flicks. Mm-hmm. So, like, in, in, like, The Howling or The Lost Boys or whatever. You know, you've got vampires, you've got werewolves, you've got 
you know, your classic monsters, but essentially like society knows that monster flicks exist. They just don't know that monsters are real. Right, in the context of those movies. So basically you take that and put it in the 90s with the slasher trope. So the kids grew up on these movies, these slasher flicks. So they right, all they know, know it's the a trope. thing, they just don't think it's part of their reality. Yeah, they just, yeah, they just don't think that, like, they're actually going to be killed by a fucking slasher. But, you know, the teenagers hang- are hanging out and they're like, don't go into a room by yourself. Don't drink and do drugs or have sex. And then literally like the killer is revealed to be a fan of the horror films that they are, mocking. are troping yeah. on. And also, and this is a thing that Wes Craven did with uh, Freddy Krueger. It's funny, but it's scary. Yeah. You know. And this is this is kind of related to some of the conversations that we have been talking about. You know, there's that really, really famous line from Scream of movies don't create psychos. Movies cr- make psychos more creative. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah. And so and so we get like a handful of, you know, self-aware slasher flicks. Like I know what you did last mm-hmm. summer and Urban Legend, which was 1997. I've seen Scream and I know what you did last summer. I don't think I've ever seen Urban Legend. Literally, it's based on the urban legends, so, like, that's the slasher trope. So, same, same thing, basically. So, you know, the babysitter, don't, you know, don't answer the phone, it's coming from inside the okay, house, that okay. sort of shit. So, that's our 90s slashers. And then, 9-11 happens. Of course. I'm curious about... In 2001. I, I'm really curious how this impacts horror. Yes, yes, that's what we're gonna... So, uh, do I have to explain 9-11 and, like, the war in Iraq? I know, I know that it is entirely probable that we have listeners that were born after 9-11. Maybe. Okay. So. <sighs> it's kind of weird. Uh, okay. So. I think everybody generally knows what 9-11 yeah. was. But uh, there was a terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, which was, like, these very, very prominent buildings in New York City. There was also a couple of attacks on, like, I think the the Pentagon. Yeah. And it was... I it, Basically, it was the first time that a susta- substantial amount of American lives were lost on American soil. Since the Civil War. From, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and in particular, it was the first time that an outside force, you know, terrorists from another country had come. Right. Like not doing, I mean, we had Pearl Harbor, but it wasn't like during, a. yeah, but like, and also Pearl Harbor was a military base. Right. Right. So that kind of, yeah, this you was know. like civilian so this was casualties. Just civilians. So, so basically this is the first time that something like this has ever happened on American soil of. American civilian lives being lost to a non-American attack. To be perfectly honest, I think that we didn't know how to deal with it. Like, as a society, how to cope with it emotionally. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so America is, like, immediately up in Afghanistan's business. Like, we were kind of already there, so... Definitely more than kind of, like... We were there. Yeah. And for some reason, like, we don't really talk about that. Like, nobody acknowledges the Afghanistan war, but, like, okay. Um, And then in 2003, America invades Iraq. So in the noughties, in the the double zeros, horror films get weird and dark. Mm -hmm. So basically, America is angry again. But this time we're not mad at our own selves. We're mad at the other. And so the horror films of this period, um, I described it as an intense numbness. 
I'm not sure if there's a better mm-hmm. description. But like our films become violence for violence sake with minimal plot. Plus our special effects are getting better. We want to show off our special effects. So bam, gore season. Right. So the violence is more realistic. Right. I think this feeds perfectly yeah. into uh, what I was talking about with gore porn and feeling really uncomfortable with it. And I mm-hmm. think that the stuff that I consider to be to be gore porn um, is stuff that came out around that time or that like a genre that seemed like it was yeah. birthed kind of after that. It actually, yes, it really was. So personally, I think that this was a reflection of America not knowing how to deal with experiencing a horrible tragedy on our own soil. So we, we, you know, invade Iraq in 2003. Saw comes out in 2004. Now, this is a psychological thriller, let's be honest. And um, the first Saw movie was actually, like, kind of high quality. Like, it, okay, it was, like, low budget, but, like, it wasn't that gory. Mm -hmm. Um, It was mostly a psychological thriller. But the plot line is established. There's these dudes. They're stuck in a murder room. And there's some trap set by the killer Mm -hmm. that they have to do horrible things to get out of. And that's that's the plot. That's always the plot. Right. That's not a lot of character history or development or anything. It's just. Yeah. Okay, we're in the so situation. So like in the first Saw movie, it was very unique and new and different. But then the Saw franchise comes out and that's, and, and, and that's the plot line. Every fucking time is there's a, is there's, you know, one main character and a bunch of other characters that are stuck in a murder room. And there's these murder traps that you have to do horrible shit to mm-hmm. get out of. That's the plot. That's the plot every single time. And there is literally a new movie every year for the rest of the naughties. Yeah, there was. And they just get more gory and violent. And again, the formula becomes like, what are fun and new ways to kill people? Right. That's And I think that's exactly what, I think that's where the discomfort comes in for me in terms of viewing that kind of thing or like I get uncomfortable about people who seem to really enjoy that kind of stuff. And I, maybe that's what's mental of me. But I think that's exactly why is because it doesn't feel like very plot oriented or uh, like there's not no, a there's not a deeper me- there's not the a deeper war. message there's not a there's not even like a quality story in terms of like if I were to be grading somebody's paper you know it's it's there's right. it's missing it's lacking and so the fact that it can be lacking so dramatically in so many areas that are usually considered to be like markers of quality entertainment or not even quality like like well, morally good I, but like just well produced entertainment like when there's elements of that that are completely yeah. gone but it's still a big box yeah. office hit it freaks me out it's like what are what are people liking about this Oh, people are legitimately liking it. And for to the me, gore. that seems different than liking it for. I feel like when you're enjoying a horror movie, it's a little more nuanced than when you're enjoying gore porn. Well, I mean, we're literally talking about slashers, which are not exactly nuanced. I think it's still a little more, though. It, yeah, I don't. I, it's complicated. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so. And, and that said, like, man, the first Saw was actually, like, a legitly good movie. Like, I don't know if you've seen the first Saw. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I d- uh, saw one was actually like legitimately good. Okay, saw. I mean, like, I don't know, I don't know. We're not gonna get into it because, like, I actually I don't judge people for whatever movies they like as long as they recognize that like they like it because it's not real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, as long as they have the recognition, the recognition of like, I know this isn't real. I'm just watching it for entertainment value. Blah blah. blah yeah. You know. So now. 
I want to bring up Hostel. Again, it's not. It's not a slasher. But I think it's really important to bring up. So Hostel comes out in 2005. It's riding that gore porn wave. Um, A group of guys are kidnapped and tortured in essentially a torture factory. Right, that people like pay for to go there and be able to torture people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is a golden example of the political economy of the time. It is, it is not only violent for violence's sake. Um, it fears the other. Like, it is, it is like, go to Eastern Europe and get kidnapped and tortured to yeah. death. And, and we are in the middle of, like, Americanization, like, like, super, 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 like, you know, America first, America only, everyone else outside of America is dangerous and like, okay, I guess it's good that it's not like fucking we go to Iraq and Americans get kidnapped and tortured. But like, you know, Eastern Europe is not, yeah. like there was a huge Eastern Europe. Right, you're saying backlash. it's not really a far cry. Like maybe it's a pretty, uh, it's like a proxy for that. Yeah. And I mean, like, hi, America and Russia. It's not exactly like we don't literally have baggage with right. And then yeah, <laughs> even though they're not necessarily directly in Russia, there is that kind of middle ground in Eastern Europe where there's all this communism and Russian control mm-hmm. and just yeah. And and so there was a huge backlash against Hostel from Eastern Europe because they were like, "Whoa, buddy, that's fucked up." And Eli Roth is on my shit list for violent othering again in a series that is uh-huh. coming up. <laughs> in and and so we will be talking about Eli Roth doing this bullshit again, again soon. <laughs> and so like that was kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to bring this up. But essentially, like we get these really, really, really intensely violent films without very much plot. Well, in our context, right? I think that's the thing is even slasher films provide a little bit of context as to why something is happening and a little bit of yeah. traditional storytelling. And I think that's what gets at me is when I think that traditional storytelling is completely thrown out and it is just like context, yeah. you know, almost completely contextless to the point that you can get away with in a film violence. Yeah. Well, and like, and so that's one of the reasons that I, that I talked about these, you know, at least these two franchises, there were other gore porn franchises that I'm not really as mm-hmm. familiar with, but like essentially, um, you know, these are the two like, you know, staple pieces of the gore porn franchise and slasher films in the noughties are mostly reboots. Okay. That makes sense. Friday the yeah. 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Halloween, they are they are all just retellings of stories that have already been told. Except for Boy Howdy, they are a lot more gory yes. than they were because they're using the naughty's yeah, gory technology. stuff, you know. And I guess there's also like Rob Zombie films. I remember those really freaked me out. Like yeah. like uh I don't know I don't know if that's really appropriate. Oh god is is like house of a thousand corpses i guess you know they kind of fit with the texas chainsaw yeah, massacre i would say so, so like i guess that's like a new film yeah. with a new story but it you know brought like house of a thousand corpses and the devil's rejects is just like it's 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 just texas chainsaw massacre if the characters and if if the family in texas chainsaw massacre had a bus and traveled to murder instead of hung out in their right. own farmhouse. <laughs> and so, like, you know, I don't, I don't want to piss people off by like, you know, saying like one because because we are literally talking about slasher films because they are like dumb and fun. And so, like, I don't want to be like, oh, well, my horror film that is dumb and fun is better than your horror film that you think is dumb and fun. Like, 
that's not a hill I'm interested in dying on because I don't give right. a fuck. But like, I do, I do think that it is really important to keep in mind this like, this weird like, we don't know where to direct our anger, anger that America was experiencing at the time when we had just violence for violence sake gore movies coming out. And that was the horror industry for like all of yeah, the Yeah, it was, huh? I remember when you it and I... Was, like, our horror in the noughties was, like, really good horror movies from other countries and just gory-ass movies from America. Or remakes of, of really good horror movies from other countries in English. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, 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 you know, The Ring and The Grudge were really fucking fantastic movies. From Japan? Yeah. From Japan. <laughs> so, you know, that was, that was horror for a decade. Um, was just America fucking dealing with being really, really fucking angry after yeah. a terrorist attack. And so now we've got modern horror, and I would argue that modern horror is, like, extra self-aware. Mm-hmm. Basically the last ten years. So my first example is Your Next, which came out in 2011, and I'm not sure how famous that one is. I think that most, like, slasher fans know yeah. it, though. And it takes, it takes all of the nostalgia of your classic slasher tropes, but it removes a lot of the bullshit. Like, oh, I'll go check out that noise by myself. Yeah. Or, you know, my obvious favorite, the completely incompetent final girl. <laughs> you know, the final girl. Who, like, the, the girl that's established to be the mm-hmm. final girl is actually, like, badass as fuck. I like that. She was like, oh, yeah, my parents are preppers. And so she, like, immediately starts, like, boarding up windows and is like, all right, get behind this. And, like, she's the one that, like, right, takes and figures charge. Out and like, out. yes, bitch. You know, it's all, like, so, like, it takes out all of the bullshit, like, sexist, like, ah, yes, the final girl is very incompetent and dumb and stupid. And is like, actually, she's a badass. Go suck a dick. <laughs> and then um, in 2012, Cabin in the Woods I comes love out. Cabin in the Woods. And that... That is a play on like all of the Which horror is tropes. Part of that why I love it so much. Ever, but it is particularly playing on slasher tropes. I mean, they literally go through like, oh, there's the jock and the stoner and the slut. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like they are very, very specifically playing on slasher tropes. So it's like it's like it's like self-aware, meta self-aware. Yeah. Literally. It is meta. You know, it takes it takes scream and times it by another scream. You scream know? squared. Scream squared. And then my most recent example that I've got is Hush from 2016. Is that the one with the kids who break into the deaf guy's house and he like slowly no, murders them? That one is Don't Breathe. Oh yeah, Don't Breathe is fucked up. Ooh, there's also like the green room. I wonder if that counts as a slasher. I don't know. Anyway, so so Hush Hush is definitely a slasher. But but this again starts to kind of evolve the slasher. So it takes it in a new direction by using a deaf protagonist. Okay. Oh, I've seen that one. Is it a woman alone in a house? Yes, I've seen that one. Mm-hmm. And then there's a guy that, like, realizes that he's deaf because, like, he's knocking on the she, door. He realizes the door she's deaf, And the yeah. girl is not responding. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, it's really neat. And it and it takes, it takes you know, the slasher genre in a direction that I don't really see a lot of other slasher movies mm-hmm. taking. Because, you know, a lot of slasher movies build off of themselves, and I can't imagine a whole like bunch a of movies sequel. being, like... Let's have a deaf protagonist every yeah. time. Because that'll get overused and exploitative real yeah. fucking quick. But, you know, I think that it might at least inspire the genre to explore mm-hmm. new avenues. You know, like, 
what if we had other interesting ways to change our lead character you know to to make the tropes more yeah. interesting make, making people more creative with either the final girl or the main character mm-hmm. you know whatever whatever it is that like you're taking the movie's direction you know just like doing something unique mm-hmm. i like that so switch it up yeah so i have no idea where horror is going right now especially because holy shit the world is on fire right it's inter- it'll be interesting <laughs> to see if people start borrowing things from our current reality into horror and like how that will be received they always do <laughs> right horror is always reflective of like right i guess i just mean like economy. timing you know like like, would it be too soon if some sort of, like, COVID-themed horror flick came out next year? Or, like... I bet we're gonna get some fucking plague movies out the wazoo. Zombies? Yeah. Zombies are always good Or, like, a good you know, if, God plague. forbid, you know, whatever happens with the election, like, weird, like, uh, uh-huh. civil war kind of horror and that kind of stuff, you mm-hmm. know? There, there are, some, there are yeah. some ways that this could go that could um, potentially be acceptable and could potentially be problematic. Yeah. So, yeah. That's the history of slashers. I love it. <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing this research, but like, damn, it got political. Well, of course but it like, did. You know, horror is inherently political. So like, ta-da. <laughs> ta-da. That it. <laughs> oh, God. Is there anything we want to say? Thanks for bearing yeah. with us while we disappeared for a million years. We're going to try to be more consistent. I've been doing a ton of research and a ton of shit. It's been a lot of fun, a lot of work. Uh, So please look forward to it. Please look Um, forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Please look forward to it. Honestly, yeah, no, I just want to thank you all for for your patience with us. Yeah, the fact that, like, people are still, I don't know, contributing to Patreon and joking about our little inside jokes and things like that, like, that does warm the soul and... yeah it makes me feel good about getting back into this for sure yeah yeah i i think that we mutually uh really appreciate everybody who has been patiently looking forward to us returning (laughs) thank you thank you so much for your support thank you so much for your patience we'll see you again soon very soon Maybe it's your window. <laughs> Maybe it's your window. All right, I think that's it. Yeah, if you wanna, if you wanna follow us, we're on all of the Palm Pitch Pod. Pitch Pod at everything. Fucking social media. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's it. We'll probably say more shit next time. I'm sure we will. Lots and lots more. Okay, that's it. Love you. Bye. Okay. Love you. Bye. Yeah, I'm such a fucked up person, but there was a part of me that was a little disappointed that I didn't test positive for COVID because I was making jokes about like, if I have COVID, is it my civic duty to specifically go to anti-mask rallies? (laughs) I I feel like it probably would have been, yeah.